Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co-parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring the amicable divorce expert, Judith Weigel. Well, those of you who are weekly listeners to this podcast know that over the past few weeks, I've been doing a lot of work on the emotional side of divorce. And that's because I just got done doing a TEDx speech, TEDx Woodenville, uh, outside of Seattle on uh, the, the successful way of, of uh, filing for a divorce, and that is to grieve before filing. And I've talked a lot about this. So in my journey to the TEDx stage, I met a woman who is going to be going to talk to us today, Megan Bond, Bondi Bond. Bondi. Bondi. Sorry about that. I'm so happy okay. I asked Megan. I, um so, yes. So in this group of TEDx speakers, we certainly got to know one another. And I think Megan's going to bring to a conversation now uh, for the next series of uh, episodes that I'm going to do. And it's going to be on the issues surrounding co-parenting. So even though Megan is not in the field of divorce, she's certainly in the field of neurodiversity. And this is a huge umbrella term that is going to include some or a lot of your children. So first of all, Megan, thank you for agreeing to do this because I think you're going to be enormously helpful to parents. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. No, I loved your talk and I really like getting to know you too. So Megan, okay, here, Megan is a neurodiversity specialist. She's founder of Team Neurodivergent and an award-winning speech language pathologist who proudly identifies as gifted and neurodivergent. Of course, I got to know you as we were giving our speeches and you went from a job that you liked to founding this company, correct? Team yeah, Neurodivergent. There was a big transition. Give us a little bit of background, please. So I've worked for years in public education. I started as a speech language pathologist and worked with kids with all different types of identities and strengths and needs, whether it was autism, ADHD, dyslexia, um, behavioral and mental health challenges, and I really loved just working with parents, working with teachers, thinking about how can we create a system that just includes and works better for kids with different minds. They're amazing children. And I just loved the problem solving and creativity involved with figuring out how can we um, adjust and support these different kids. And in that process, uh, my kids got identified as gifted at their school. Uh, several years into my career, I had been doing leadership in all these. And I thought, you know, I don't know much about giftedness and how, what does this mean? And as I started to dig into it, there's so much more 
beyond just some subjects in school come easily to them. There's the emotional components, the sensory components. And I realized that all of my work specializing in autism and ADHD and sensory differences, really, I was needing to use with my own kids. And they had these amazing strengths. And they also were sort of wired differently in their brain and didn't quite fit into the box of how education is designed. Um, I didn't get a parenting manual for how to work with kids who are super highly sensitive and just process the world differently. And as I started researching about their needs, I discovered that I'm gifted and that there's this neurodiversity community out there and oftentimes giftedness isn't really considered a part of it. But when you really understand it, it's absolutely wired differently and things aren't really designed for our different brains. And so I couldn't believe that I had worked for years helping kids and working with teachers and parents. And then to come to discover that my kids and myself are also neurodivergent and wired differently and have have some unique strengths and unique needs. Okay, so before I ask you about your children, and I am in a second, I need to clear, we need to define and clarify two terms. What does neurodivergent mean? What does gifted mean? Yeah, absolutely. So I define neurodivergent as you perceive the world differently, maybe behave differently than what's considered typical or common for a culture. And so it includes all of these different identities and labels. It really started with autism, thinking we don't want to be called autism spectrum disorder. Why are we focusing on a disorder or a deficit? What if we use a different term that means neurodivergent, our brain is just different and different is not less or worse. It's just that different. And, and we need all of the different brains and gifted in the, is the same thing where oftentimes people think, Oh, you think you're better than everybody else. Life is easy for you. And that's not the case. It's also a different type of brain. It has strengths. It also has challenges. And I would define giftedness as asynchronous development. Our development really has some um, peaks that are in some really exceptional areas. And we have some real challenges too. And so it, it ends up being a really bumpy wave of strengths and challenges. And part of giftedness is the five overexcitabilities, which I like to call intensities. Um, I don't like the word over for overexcitabilities because I've always felt like too much and it's not too much. It's just different. But the research is around these five overexcitabilities that are part of giftedness. And you're going to name, up in, name what they are, Megan. Um, so there's psychomotor, which is a lot of the physical activity or fast talking or tendency towards workaholism. There's the emotional intensity. It's the high highs of big joy and pleasure over beautiful sunsets or artwork or soft blankets and puppies to really deep depression, existential depression of what is even the purpose of life, deep disgust when something feels gross. So it's these high highs and low lows emotionally, which overlaps with there's a sensory 
intensity and you love soft things or you love to look at certain artwork visually, it's deep, intense love or deep, intense displeasure. Loud sounds really bother you. Bright lights, fluorescent lights really bother you. Um, the smells of the dishwasher are really intensely disgusting or tastes and textures for leading to picky eating. So the, the sensory is the third one. Um, then we have intellectual intensity, really avid readers or uh, wanting to listen to tons of podcasts or watch lots of YouTube videos just really intense about learning, especially in really specific areas. Sometimes it can jump from one thing to another, um, but just like insatiable hunger for learning in different ways and um, needing a lot of input and challenge to keep the brain engaged or else just checking out. Um, and also this can look like extreme disinterest in the topics that they're not interested in, not wanting to do schoolwork if it's not aligned with that topic. Um, and then the last one is the imaginational intensity. And so the imagination can be um, creative writing, artwork, music, theater, um, these amazing imaginative activities, vivid dreams, uh, creative problem solving and outside the box thinker. And then the challenge of the imaginational intensity is the anxiety because you're imagining bad things that might happen in the future or um, catastrophizing. Um, and so all of the intensities have strengths and are like a double edged sword and can be a challenge too. Okay, that's really interesting because I honestly think that every family has somebody somewhere within two to three generations that fall into any of these areas you just named. But I want to go back to the word gifted a second. Does gifted mean highly intellectual, a high IQ? So that's one way to identify giftedness. So I was a gifted and talented specialist in the schools and was part of the identification process to find the gifted kids. And the state of Colorado, where I work, has different categories or identification areas. And IQ is one of the areas, but it's not the only one. And so when we do screening and testing for kids, we're looking at typically three areas for intellect of quantitative, the more mathematical or logical thinking. We're looking at verbal, um, which might be vocabulary and, but it can even be how are pictures related, things like that. Um, but the verbal is more of the reading and writing and talking and thinking in words. And then visual spatial is the other one that we would screen and test for. And there would be like paper folding and geometric designs. And often the teachers would be most surprised when a kid would get identified gifted in the area of visual spatial because they may not be doing well in school. And the our school systems really aren't set up and designed for that type of thinker. Um, we were also able to identify giftedness in the areas of art, psychomotor, athletics, dance, theater, leadership, creative thinking, um, music, um, 
uh, world language. Like you're learning languages really quickly, even somebody who's learning English quickly. Um, there were, yeah, and in science, social studies, you can get ide identified gifted in, in each of these sort of subject areas. And then general intellect was one area where somebody might score high on an IQ test and get identified. Um, but really, there's lots of ways to get identified where we're really looking for the 95th percentile or higher in one of these areas. And sometimes it would require a portfolio and more just sort of qualitative measures with professionals judging to identify. And then the teachers did have to fill out questionnaires to look for the five intensities. Those needed to be present to be identified as gifted. Okay, so interesting to me how people can be gifted in various areas and intellectual may not be an area of giftedness. So let's use my nephew, John, who's 38 years old. He went to the best um, elementary, uh, middle and high school in his neighborhood back in Pennsylvania where Mm -hmm. He still lives with my sister because there's no housing opportunity for high functioning learning disabled. So intellectually, his IQ falls a little bit under 70, but he has progressed. He can work. And what I am fascinated about, what I was fascinated about 20 years ago was his ability to catalog, catalog all the birds, catalog mm -hmm. all the fish. And we didn't realize he was cataloging. My mother at the time she was living was helping him, but he could recite back if we went to the aviary, he could mm -hmm. recite back these birds mm -hmm. and their different migration habits and, and how they needed to live, what they needed to eat. And the same thing with fish. Math and reading are his issues. He cannot count change, still can't. So working in a grocery store, he can do everything but be a cashier or any store. Mm -hmm. But he taught himself how to increase his vocabulary, which is exceptional, by the way, on an adult standard by listening to rap music which is, is his favorite music mm -hmm. and looking at the CDs and looking at the liner notes, the lyrics as the liner notes while he's listening. And he started increasing his vocab. Now, lest you think you don't increase your vocabulary listening to rap music, <laughs> you would be wrong. You haven't listened to rap music then. You have to get, get past the stuff that turns people off. Mm -hmm. And we all know what that is, the cursing or whatever, the dehumanizing of women. If you can get that out of the way, right. there's some really intelligent stuff, social justice stuff between yeah. rappers like Tupac and the like that really are social commentary. So I say that because would we call him gifted in some areas, Megan? So it's hard to say if he would meet the criteria based on just hearing the stories, but we can't rule it out for people. The The IQ tests are not always accurate. They can be biased. IQ can change. Um, 
based on experiences. I mean, our intelligence is a combination of sort of the window of or uh, range of what we're born with and what we genetically have with our experiences. And when we really look at intelligence with the multiple intelligences and all the possible ways someone can have high intelligence, um, it's possible, you know? And so there are specific criteria um, to be able to be considered twice exceptional where you have both the disability and the math and the reading that you talked about, as well as gifted and be considered in the you know, 95th or 98th, there, there's not a common agreement on the exact cutoff and um, score of how to identify. But um, having some of those really exceptional strengths with memory for an ability to catalog the birds or um, learning vocabulary in that unique way um, and having that exceptional vocabulary, um, it's possible that that, that he could get identified as twice exceptional. So remember Rain Man, the, the role Dustin Hofton played? What was mm-hmm. he? Because he could catalog. Yeah, um, it's hard to say. And a lot of people, because really you need a comprehensive body of evidence to really make these different identifications. And a lot of people are concerned about the lack of Labels. representation uh, in the media to show the wide diversity of the different identities and brains. And so, so many people use Rain Man as this icon or representation of what everybody is like. And it's just one way of being and gifted and twice exceptional neurodivergent people have such a wide range. All of us are unique and different and Rain Man's not Autistic uh, representative. Savant. Autistic savant. That's mm-hmm. how he was in the movie represented. Yeah. Okay, let's go back to your kids a second. How old are they now? You have two children, right? Yes. So they're seven and ten. Mm-hmm. They're seven and ten. When did they get tested? So there's a universal screening in our state in the schools for second graders. And so my daughter got um screened then and after the screening, then she went through the full um, comprehensive identification process. Now, my son, we had learned about it earlier and his kindergarten teacher brought up that she was noticing uh, signs of giftedness. And given what our daughter had gone through, we requested it um, when he started first grade. What, are, what um, were the signs? Megan, what were the signs? Um. His ability to learn incredibly quickly, um, his really mature sense of humor. He would laugh at comments that the teacher would make that the rest of the class didn't quite get was over their head. Um, And I think she saw the just intense curiosity, quick thinking and some of the behavioral characteristics that he was impulsive. He would call out answers when the kids were supposed to raise their hand and wait. Mm. He needed to move around a lot, um, that psychomotor intensity. Um, but I think uh, oftentimes teachers' understanding focuses a lot on the um, you know high test scores of his math and reading assessments that they were giving and his rapid learning. 
And so he's the kind of kid that the teacher who has a lot of experience and knowledge around it might notice. Whereas the kids who are more on the visual spatial or twice exceptional because maybe they're dyslexic or have another learning disability and gifted, the, the teacher might not make that recommendation to parents and notice to be able to request the testing sooner than that universal screening. You know, this puts really a huge burden on teachers, doesn't it? To be able to observe children at whatever age they're teaching and uh, not judge negatively, but look farther to see what uh, beautiful different gifts these kids have and how to channel those, their energy in a way that it brings their gifts forward, correct? Yes, because gifted kids are often... um you know, receiving punishments for their behavior and criticized. Mm -hmm. um, I know there's data about ADHD that they receive an enormous amount of negative comments throughout their life by the time they're even done with elementary school compared to kids who aren't identified ADHD. And ADHD and giftedness really overlap a lot. It's a really common area of twice exceptionality where you're both ADHD and gifted. And um, that there's kids that really struggle and can get on a path of just continuously being in trouble, getting sent to the hall, having sit at a, to sit at a different desk, missing recess that they need the most. Um, and by the time I was working with them in middle and high school, it's suspensions and expulsions and um, behaviors getting involved with drugs or alcohol or um, other things that are really scary. Um, as a result of they're differently wired and their needs were not met, they didn't get the supports that they needed based on somebody identifying that about them. Before we go on to how can we get people help, how can parents step in and move the conversation along? I just want to clarify something because I made some notes um, going into this interview and I put defined terms. So yes, you, you define neurodivergent, gifted. Here's the other ones I wrote. And, and I did hear you say a couple of them when you were introducing the topic. High functioning learning disabled, Down syndrome, autistic. We don't use the word generally retarded anymore. That was the only word used for anything. Even when I was a kid, that was the main mm -hmm. go-to word. And then dyslexic. I, that was tough. If you were dyslexic, boy, you were just put at the bottom of the list mm -hmm. of abilities. So within this huge world of differences, mm -hmm. all of these differences, do they have silver linings to them? Can people with any of these differences contribute to society in a significant way. Absolutely. And I really function from a lens um, that is the neurodiversity paradigm. And what this paradigm or lens and way of thinking is, is that there is no one ideal brain. All of the brains are important. And if we 
can shift our thinking to see how important it is that we have diversity and that all of the differences improve our world, improve our communities, make things better, then I don't even see it as a silver lining. It's just what a beautiful brain that you have and you're contributing. And the metaphor that we often use in the world of neurodiversity is that it's similar to biodiversity. Just like we need lots of animals and plants and insects, and the more biodiverse an area is, the more lush and the bigger ability for it to just thrive in terms of our environment and nature. Um, The biodiversity is critically important. And when one thing goes extinct or is out of balance, the negative impact that it has on that environment, that ecosystem. And the same thing happens with brains. When we try to squash or change or diminish a type of brain and we don't really see the strengths that that person brings to the ecosystem of all the different ways of thinking and perceiving in the world, then we're really missing out and making our communities um, less powerful, less able to flourish and thrive. Um, There's something specific that I want to mention about Down syndrome, which when you brought up the word retarded, the word that we use now to identify kids is an intellectual or cognitive disability. And um, often kids with Down syndrome will also meet that criteria where they have an intellectual or cognitive disability. Um, There is new research that their visual spatial skills are not in the gifted range, but in the typical average range, and that their art and visual spatial responses are really Um, right, similar to the average ability to um, make art or interpret visual spatial and even the emotional connection and and joy they bring to a community with their just um, affective ways of being is just wonderful. And we, we need we need the brains who aren't all about achievement and productivity all of the time to balance our world that is all about go, go, go busyness. Don't they help us just stop and pause and realize what's actually important in life sometimes? Yes. And so I'm going to use John, my nephew, as an example again in two ways. One is you have to talk to them to get to know them. We tend to avoid conversation and I'm not blaming anybody, Um, but I, I noticed that too many people avoid conversation with intellectually divergent. And I don't mean high, high, lower intellect, but still they communicate and not understanding how to figure out where you connect. Like, so with my nephew, I connect with him on music and well, definitely music. Oh, and shopping. Yes, we connect on going to the mall and music. And we have a wonderful time. And this is what we do all the time. Mm -hmm. When we're in a family gathering, he leaves the room frequently for two reasons. A, nobody's really talking to him. Mm -hmm. And B, 
it's too much noise and talking in one room for him to be able to delineate conversations. Because you know, when you're in a family gathering, there's more than one conversation that goes on at the same time. Okay, so there's that. And I want you to comment on that. Number two, lest you think that these folks that we tend to categorize as different do not observe life you would be wrong. He mm-hmm. says to me one day on the phone, Aunt Judy, I want to say something. I think the advance in technology has made people more stupid. <laughs> I was just having that conversation with somebody yeah. here in Los Angeles about get that chat GPT away from me. I want to use my brain. I yeah. don't want a machine to think for me anymore. I, I don't want I don't want to do that. And so when he said that to me, I was blown away. I'm like, yep. where did you get this observation? He said, What do you mean? I just looked around. Mm-hmm. Could you comment on those two things about communicating to these people? Uh, our family and friends. These people are our family and friends, coworkers, students. Communicate with them. Why are we so afraid? Uh, It's a different form of communication and it's not worse or better. And so the neurotypical way of communicating, which is not neurodivergent, people who tend to think and perceive and behave in a way that's most common and typical for a culture, we think that this way is better. And many therapies are trying to change neurodivergent communicators into neurotypical communicators. This is how you need to communicate. This is the best way to do it. It's really not an ideal or better way. It's different. And people who are neurotypical, who have been in communities and in school systems and jobs where communication has come more naturally to them and they sort of fit into that mold, need to be doing more of the work to bridge that translation gap with people who are neurodivergent. It's not the neurodivergent people's responsibility to do all of the heavy lifting and work and figure out how is this communication going to work? How am I going to change to fit into this style of communication? And so we we need to learn about it. And one form of communication that some neurodivergent people have is info dumping, where there's not as much turn taking and back and forth. And the way they communicate is they share lots of knowledge and information, maybe about a special interest or topic that they know a lot about. This is not a wrong way of communicating. And so to notice if you're getting frustrated listening and thinking about, well, how can I bridge the gap and be a listener and ask questions about it and communicate in this different way with a person about their interests, using their strengths, their style, Um, not expecting them to always ask questions. Maybe they're not a question asker and being open to just sharing comments, making connections, um, putting putting ideas out there to have a conversation about. And so that those are the types of specific strategies or things to notice is how is this person different? And, and even does this com- person communicate better on Zoom or 
video chat or text or email versus in person? Do they communicate better when there's lots of people around? Small groups, one-on-one. Does the environment need to be quiet for them to be able to process the information? And so looking at all those differences and making those adjustments to be able to connect and, and get to know them and see their amazing strengths. Absolutely. I, I really enjoy talking to my nephew a lot. And so we talk a couple times a week. He's across the country. And then we talk a lot when I'm in town and it, it's a pleasure. It's, it's actually a pleasure. And, um, I, I don't know that everybody's comfortable doing it, but let's move this to parents now. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, I work in the field of divorce. So I deal a lot with co-parenting plans. And, uh, you mentioned before we started this recording, you said, well, Judy, it's really the same with two parents in a household. Uh, versus two parents in two different households, the situation is still the same. And let's talk about that situation and what has to happen. So let me just throw you a co- one thing at a time for you to respond to. What I noticed with my nephew is that his father really had to be pulled into the conversation starting around three years old when my sister said, no, I've got to get him tested. I, he was, he, she already had one child at the time and a younger brother who was one. So John's right in the middle. And she said, no, 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 no. And she was a teacher. So she said, no, 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 no. We need to get him tested. The behavior is different. The the emotional expression is different. And the communication style is different. And she had to do it on her own for the first couple years. And then eventually his father had to recognize because test results were available. Do you find that there's anything gender specific about women being more proactive than dads or am I, am I using this example incorrectly? No, I don't think so. I think it's really common for parents to have different experiences and different interpretations of their kids' behavior and development. And so that's just an area of conflict that can happen in any couple. And the the things that go into somebody really struggling to acknowledge a difference, reach out for supports, are are so many things from their cultural background, their upbringing, um, the messages that we received that we receive about disability, even through who gets to be the main character on TV shows and in movies and um, what's valued in our culture, um, often productivity in a certain type of intellect or communication style. And so it's scary to acknowledge that your child may have these differences, that they may need some extra supports, and that their future and path through life may look different than what you expected. And unfortunately, it's really grounded in those beliefs that we have that not all brains are created equal and that there is one ideal brain and the other brains are not as good. And so in order for 
people to be able to move forward, they need to acknowledge those emotions, the fear that they have. I had the fear when I realized that giftedness included these intensities that could make life challenging. And still, my husband and I do have differences sometimes about what we perceive or the next steps. And for women in general, it's everything with managing the household tends to fall more on women. It's all of the mental load and coordinating and organizing and planning and thinking of all of the things and the appointments and it, you know, it's slowly getting more equitable, but it's, there's still a difference in such a variety of aspects. The emotional work of parenting is falling more on women still of being there to help a child regulate when they're dysregulated, to be able to talk them through social emotional situations and navigating because men are taught even more so than women that Emotions are weak and, you know, keep them inside. And so all of this extra work, when you have an extra emotionally intense child, an extra highly sensitive child processes things differently, it does fall more on the women often. And it's already a lot of things in life are doing that. And then you add navigating the school systems and parenting for an exceptional kid who's wired differently it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time to figure out who do I contact? What appointments do I need to make? Um, how am I going to schedule this? How am I going to talk to the teacher in school? Planning out the conversations, advocating for them when they're mistreated. It's a huge job. It is a huge job. I just thought of a friend of mine um, who works in the office building and she has a child I, I don't exactly remember how she defined her child, but I think slightly autistic. I, there's varying degrees of autism, too. And uh, there was an issue that came up with it, it was a classroom of different brains, mm -hmm. but very different. I mean, there was no similarity, really. And there was one child that was twice as big as her child who bullied and that, oh my God, she had to miss so much work and she was scared to death. Um, the, 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 the bigger child had to stay home for a while, which was great because then her child got a break. Then he's coming back to school and, and all that dr emotional drama starts all over again. So I understand what you mean, just being on the periphery of this, not actively involved as a mom in this regard, but, what should parents do, Megan, if one parent is laser focused on uh, my child's brain is different, I need to figure out what it is and how I can support, and the other parent isn't on board? What do you do? How do you communicate? Yeah, it it's really a challenge, and it comes back to what's within your sphere of control which is if you have that intuition that your child needs some other supports, which is critically important to get kids who are wired differently and who are neurodivergent, the supports that they need um, to go ahead and move forward without the other partner, if that's what it takes. 
and make the phone call and go through the identification process or meet with the school. And ultimately, it can come down to that partner is going to choose not to be involved with any of it. Is And so then it it's what are my boundaries for um, if I'm willing to stay in this relationship, given that it's not 50-50 or we're not dividing the parenting and the work equally and um, just continuing forward and giving yourself lots of grace in the process, um, allowing yourself to take it slow, allowing yourself to grieve even because you're grieving the loss of what you imagined Mm -hmm. your child would be like. And it's an important step. And so if it takes you time to do that and take care of yourself and get a coach or a therapist to talk through the emotions that you're feeling with noticing these differences, that's okay to take that time because it's an investment in being able to have the space in your brain to navigate the the services and celebrating their strengths and supporting their needs. Um, it, it's such a balancing act and, and it does take time and and you may have to do it alone if your partner chooses not to. You can try to communicate, this is how I feel, this is what I'm seeing and ask them questions to hear their point of view. And um, that's all you can do. And maybe ask them, is there a fear that's <laughs> kind of blinding them or um, rendering them immobile to investigate, consider that we have a child that needs um, a different approach uh, to life and, 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 and different kinds of help. I know that you don't work in the field of divorce, Megan. So I'm just going to say this to people who are listening that are saying, well, Judy, you know, we have a 50-50, a joint custody plan. And in California, we have legal custody versus vis- physical custody. And it's under the legal custody that we have decisions about education, uh, medical treatment, religion and culture, but, but medical treatment and education come under that. And I'm thinking as you were talking, okay, so what can we say to those people who already filed for joint legal custody, which means they have to make decisions together. I'm thinking that softly proceed softly with your uh, co-parent in terms of uh, how to move forward with your child, how to get them tested. Because I think, Megan, at the end of the day, stuff's going to happen in school that's going to force parents to address the issue, yeah. right? I mean, not always, but there are legal avenues um, to pursue if the school's not meeting their needs. And um, there there may be... Um, kind of considerations when it's a joint custody situation to navigate just the IEPs for the individualized education plan or the 504 plan or the advanced learning plan for the giftedness. Um, All of these different aspects, you know, sometimes parents do have to get legal and um, support and involvement with going through those processes. Um, The other thing that I would say is helped me with communicating with my partner around our kids' differences is, again, within my sphere of control, is to share when I feel scared. And so 
when I notice emotions or when I'm struggling or when I'm overwhelmed with the decision making to be vulnerable and share that with my partner to help him know that he's not alone if that's coming up and if that might be what's blocking um, his action and, and support and collaboration. And I think to conclude with all of this, thank you, that was great. To conclude with all of this, perhaps expressing to the reluctant parent um, what you as parents can learn from your neurodivergent child Mm -hmm. that will really be a gift to you Mm -hmm. and how you enjoy life with your child and look at life differently as a benefit to the parent. What do you think about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, If you go into an evaluation or services thinking, this is to identify how my kid is broken, how they're deficient, the services are to fix them or cure them. That's not a strength-based or positive way to celebrate your child's uniqueness. And so to reframe it as, I want to get the child identified so I understand them better, so I can connect with them, really see where their strengths are, understand their challenges better, get help from professionals for recommendations for how we can make them feel loved and supported and thrive and and decrease the stress in our home for them and for us. And even when I take my kids to get services, I get a break. The professional is working with them to help them regulate or or learn new skills. And I deserve that break as a parent to get somebody who has some energy and different expertise and a different lens to support me because I've been through a lot. It's a hard journey. And to receive that help and not be ashamed because that's what it often comes down to is I feel shame. I'm not good enough as a parent. Something is wrong with me because my child is struggling or different. Yeah, that's, you know what, that that's a great place to end because I think that that might be the stumbling block for a lot of different issues in life, the shame. Mm-hmm. And if we could get rid of that, our world opens up in yeah. ways we never even considered that it could. And Absolutely. we need to do that for ourselves. And thank you for mentioning also in conclusion here about parents need a break. (laughs) Let the professionals take over an hour or two, please. Because you need to breathe a little bit and um, uh, gather your strength. Um, That's right. Gather your Megan, this was great. I'm so happy that we met. And it was, wasn't that a great experience doing the TEDx speeches? So so transformational. And even your talk was just so enlightening, even not going through a divorce to just be addressing emotions and conflict. And I think there's nuggets from every single talk that I could apply to my life. And it was just a beautiful experience. It really, really was. So for all of you listening to, you know, you can go online and for any topic, even this topic, you can key in TED Talk, TEDx Talk and put the topic down and you can see some wonderful people. 
uh, discussing whatever topic you would like. And I'm sure this topic has come up a few times here and there. So, Megan, thank you so much. Now, listen, the show notes will have contact information. But for those people who simply like to listen and jot down contact information, easiest way for people to get in touch with you. Absolutely. I am most active on LinkedIn and Facebook. So there's Team Neurodivergent Pages on both of those platforms. I also have a website, teamneurodivergent.com, and you can sign up to um, get the emails or um, schedule a discovery call to learn about the services that I provide to support parents in navigating this journey. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the work you've done and thank you for the time that you've spent with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I've loved our conversation. And thank all of you for listening. As always, I hope this was a a helpful episode. Please send this to anybody that you feel uh, needs it. You can also reach me, as you probably know, unless you're a first-time listener, uh, through my website, theamicabledivorceexpert.com. And uh, on the um, page where the episodes are, there's an email opportunity to communicate with me uh, how you felt about this episode and if there are other episodes you'd like to see. And as always, have an amicable day. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves, be kind to your spouse, and cherish your children above all else.